Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tramps that he could find. And on the stage in a pirate scene, the uh, pirate mentions Skull and Bones. And Skull and Bones being a very secret society at Yale, so secret that the members are supposed to leave the room when Skull and Bones is mentioned. So at the word skull and bones from the stage, these four tramps got up from the front row and walked out of the theater. Roommate John Biggs remembers even more personally those days with Scott Fitzgerald in the Triangle Club. He wrote many lyrics for the various Triangle shows. And his lyrics were extremely good, almost professional. In fact, I would say they were professional in in quality. I remember that in 1917, a friend of mine uh, named Frederick Bonefalk of New York and I wrote a triangle club play called Safety First. Uh, I think the less said about that particular play, probably the better. But Fitzgerald did the lyrics for it. And the lyrics were really very good indeed. Princeton at that time did not have the McCarter Theater. And all of the rehearsals took place in a rather large uh, room called the Auditorium. There was no gallery, and we used to have to put our lights up on a light tower. And during the latter stages of the rehearsal, Fitzgerald and I used to sit on that light tower and quarrel bitterly as to whether the audience was laughing at his lyrics or the lines written by Freddie Bonefalk and myself. In retrospect, I have no doubt that his lyrics were far superior to any lines that I have ever written. Another recollection of the Triangle Club, and again, Judge Biggs. Fitzgerald made up magnificently as a woman, uh, which was an odd business because he really was totally lacking in any effeminate or really feminine characteristics. But when he had been padded and spliced out in the proper places, he really was phenomenally good-looking. And they used to take stills for these triangle shows, still pictures by way of advertisement. And they took one of Fitzgerald sitting on a sort of a pedestal. He was quite startlingly handsome and showed a good deal of cheesecake. And uh, that picture was included in the stills which I left around my room at my father's house, my mother came up and saw this particular picture of Fitzgerald and decided that her son was associating with evil companions. 
tore it into a great many pieces and throw it in a wastepaper basket when she suddenly realized that it was a picture of Fitzgerald, so she dug the pieces out, and the poor lady spent several afternoons gluing them together on a board to preserve this picture. It was a good life there at Princeton, despite the threat of borderline grades. And despite the predictions of cynics, it was a chronic illness that forced Fitzgerald out of school in 1917. Then, after a quick recovery, he found himself in the Army, a wartime second lieutenant stationed at Montgomery, Alabama. It was there he met Zelda Sayre, his future wife. She was very beautiful in an unusual way. That's Gerald Murphy, longtime friend of the Fitzgeralds in New York and on the Riviera. She had rather a, a very powerful, hawk-like expression, very beautiful features, not classic, and extremely penetrating eyes and a very beautiful figure, and she moved beautifully. She had a beautiful voice, as some, and I suppose most Southern women do have. She had a slight Southern accent. She had a great sense of her own appearance and wore dresses that were very full and uh, very graceful, and her sense of the color she should wear was, was very keen. She had a great head of tousled hair, which was extremely beautiful, neither blonde nor brown. And um, I always thought that uh, it was remarkable that the, her favorite flower was, uh, was a peony. They happened to grow in our garden, and uh, whenever she came to see us, she would take a great bunch of them and do something with them and pin them on her bodice, and they somehow were expressive of her. Her mind worked uh, in a most interesting way. She almost never said anything indifferent, or certainly nothing ever silly. And her angle of uh, vision and her perception was very personal. After the war, Fitzgerald never went overseas, came his engagement to Zelda broken off when Scott returned to civilian life and failed as an advertising writer in New York. Now it was home to St. Paul and a somewhat skeptical family. It was there, as newspaper man Dick Washington recalls, that work went forward on the revision of a rejected first novel, a book retitled This Side of Paradise. It was a difficult job, made no easier by a family which couldn't quite see writing as a serious profession. Dick Washington. During this period he was not allowed any spending money. And I used to see him practically every evening because we would go over to the corner drugstore and have Coca-Cola and cigarettes. And in those conversations, I knew what he was thinking about and what his hopes and plans were for this novel. He hoped more than anything that it would be successful because he was in love with this girl who lived in Montgomery, Alabama. And it was rather a Cinderella story because he wasn't sure of what the novel would do, whether it would be even be accepted. And when it finally was accepted, he was in ecstasy, you might say. And I remember very well his mailing the manuscript to Scribner's in New York. And it, he fondled it like a child. He said, this is my future right here, or it isn't one way or the other. And then I remember how elated he was when he received a check, $5,000 advance royalties, 
for the novel. And I happened to be going by, and he ran out the door waving this check. And I knew what it meant to Scott. He left the next day. He couldn't pack fast enough to get on the train down to see his future wife in Montgomery. This Side of Paradise was published in March of 1920. Scott and Zelda, their earlier quarrels forgotten, were married on April 3rd. And then began a round of parties that were soon to become their trademark. But parties take money, and Scott Fitzgerald needed an agent to sell his work. Here's Harold Ober, who became not only his agent, but a close personal friend. The first time I saw Scott Fitzgerald was in the uh, autumn of 1919. He came uh, to my office with a letter from Max Perkins, Scribner's. Max had told me about his uh, forthcoming book, The Side of Paradise, which is coming out the next year. And Max thought that Scott would be able to write stories for some of the magazines that would pay more money than uh, Scribner's and Smart Set, to whom he'd sold a couple of stories. Scott came in one day. He was a very good-looking young man, and uh, he looked to me about 16 years old. And we talked about writing, and uh, he told me he thought he could write stories that the Saturday Evening Post would buy. About uh, a few weeks later, he brought in a story called Head and Shoulders, which I sold to the Saturday Evening Post. And, uh, they paid $400 for it. It was a good price for a first story at that time. In the next uh, five months, he wrote six stories all of which I sold to the Post. They raised his price, and uh, just ten years from then, they were paying him $4,000 a short story. The short story sold well, and so did This Side of Paradise. The nation almost overnight had discovered a new literary talent of major proportions. And just what it was that readers were finding has been pinned down for all time by Malcolm Cowley, author, critic, and Princeton classmate. Scott Fitzgerald was endowed by nature with a gift that very few writers are able to acquire. That is the sense of living in history. Manners and morals were changing all through his life, and he tried in his books to make a record of the changes. He wrote, for example, By 1927, a widespread neurosis began to be evident, faintly signaled like a nervous beating of the feet by the popularity of crossword puzzles. That is pure Fitzgerald. He was haunted by time, as if he wrote in a room full of clocks and calendars. He made lists by the hundred, including lists of the popular songs, the football players, the top debutantes, with the types of beauty they tried to cultivate, the hobbies and the slang expressions of a given year. He felt that all these names and phrases belonged to the year and helped to reveal its momentary color. After all, he said in his story, any given moment has its value. It can be questioned in the light of after events, but the moment of beauty was there. Fitzgerald lived in the drama of his own great moments, but he also stood aside from them and reckoned their causes and consequences. He was a romantic actor playing a part, but he was also an audience that kept a cold eye on the actor.